City of Champions. Very excited to be talking today with former Master Corporal Chance Burroughs from the Canadian Armed Forces. Chance is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan who is right now working towards helping other vets deal with issues that he's faced since leaving the service, such as anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. Chance is also the lead organizer for the first annual Canadian Walk for Veterans happening across Canada and, of course, including Edmonton on June 3rd. When I heard about what Chance was up to, I had to invite him on the show, and he was kind enough to make room in his insanely busy schedule for me. Chance opens up about, uh, he opens up an incredible look for us civilians into the life of the military uh, and some of the major issues veterans face upon their exit of this service. Uh, please enjoy my chat with Chance. Today, sitting here with former Master Corporal Chance Burles. I get that right? Yep. That's right. <laughs> um, Chance, you served uh, eight years in the Army and the Forces. Yeah, eight years as a uh, combat engineer. It was an interesting, interesting time. To I'm, say e- least. I'm excited to hear about it. So, the first thing I want to say is, and something you probably get a lot, um, is that you don't look like what someone would picture when you say a veteran, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and this is a common misconception and something you could probably shed some light on and understanding of. Yeah, it, uh, you know, the quintessential veteran that we think of now is World War II or Korea, the older gentlemen, the guys with the huge racks of medals from all the different missions they've been on. And it, we're in a totally different ball game now. We have, you know, uh, young guys as young as 19, 20, 22, who are veterans of multiple tours already. We have other guys who are in their 30s or 40s who don't have the combat tour like Afghanistan, but still have the Mac of medals, uh, correction, the rack of medals from uh, Bosnia and Serbia and um, Lebanon and Israel and all the different peacekeeping missions that we've done for years. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a bit of a different thing showing up for Remembrance Day and being the one young guy <laughs> in the crowd. <laughs> Like, whose son are you? <laughs> You're like, no, yeah, no, 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 exactly. I actually served. Yeah, I get that a lot. I have a veteran's plate on my truck, mm-hmm. and I get people who will, you know, really look deeply into my driver's mirror as right. they go by, and they're like, wait, 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 and you get these weird looks from people. But I think it's because, you know, we're, we're educated in, in elementary and high school. Like, wars were like World War One and World War Two, and those yeah. were wars. And, like, we don't think of, you know, it, it, warfare's changed. And, you know, something you could talk to a lot um <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not the that. big battlefield lines of infantry anymore, right? No, asymmetrical warfare is the new style where we're fighting against a mixture of civilians and combatants and um, foreign fighters and random people who just show up because they want to get into it. And you have, you know, your rules of engagement aren't, if a dude is in a gray uniform, shoot him. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to <laughs> confirm. And even then... There's issues with, like, when I was in Afghanistan, the locals have weapons. Openly. They'll just carry around AKs. Right. You don't know if they're a bad guy. You have to wait until they either draw on you or pull their weapon up or activate an ID or look suspicious. There's there's so many oh, so many things you have to play in. It's weird. And are, are they scared when they see opposing soldiers? Like, no. if they're a civilian? No. 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 So they'll just stroll by you with their gun around them. Yeah. And just, but they probably know, like, don't put their hand on their gun and raise it because then you're going to yeah, shoot. Yeah. Yeah. If they were to actually pull their weapon up on us, they'll be dead pretty fast. But, yeah. Uh, 
it it's a culturally so culturally different over there that they see assault weapons regularly. Mm-hmm. It's a normal part of their life. I mean, they had when I was there, they had the older guys were veterans against the Russians. The really old guys were veterans, uh, or they were kids of veterans against the British in the early 1800s, uh, or the early 1900s. The um, uh, the average male 40s, 30s, 40s were, again, sons of veterans who had been fighting against uh, the Russians, who had then been fighting against the Taliban initially, or the Northern Alliance, or the different warring factions that were going on after Russia left. And then you had the young guys who were veterans against fighting against us or the Americans or things. And then you had another generation of kids there who <laughs> they were just totally used to it. And, and I think this is probably what we don't understand in our part of the world is how complex all these inner workings and all these different historical feuds have been because we're so sheltered in North America and Canada and the U.S. specifically of like, I don't know, the enemies are over there. Like you yeah. kind of lump them all together, but you don't realize all the, you know, uh, nuances of the different cultural groups and, and uh, the histories there because they're much older societies than Absolutely. we are. I mean, Afghanistan is still a very tribal uh, nation and a lot of things are dealt with tribally rather than federally. Um, most of the people that I was experienced, like I was there in 08, so this is 10 years ago now, um, and they were, um, sorry, the, uh, <laughs> uh, most people didn't understand that Afghanistan as a country really even existed. They knew it, but they didn't really believe that it was a country. They had their tribe and their local area that's all they need. Right. So as per federal government and mm-hmm. police and military and stuff, they're like, eh, eh. It's kind of like how Alberta and BC are starting to become, right? A little bit. Yeah, <laughs> we're, <little> bit. <laughs> we're insular. We <laughs> yeah. don't need the rest of the country. Yeah. At this point, yeah. I mean, BC and, uh, BC and Alberta could just separate from Canada and be perfectly fine economically mm-hmm. in, uh, and infrastructurally and things like that and separate from each other. We could run our stuff, but that's uh, not a very good idea. <laughs> So um, off air, you told me that you know even from a young age, you you always wanted to be in the military. What yeah. was sort of what was the inception of that? Uh, I don't know. I always wanted to be in the army ever mm-hmm. since I was little. It was uh, I got a pop gun I think for my fourth birthday, and the first thing I did was run out to my treehouse and I stood on guard on top with a rifle on my shoulder, <laughs> just standing there. I think I was there for a couple of hours. And I don't know why. I just always had this fascination with them and kind of went with it. My grandfather fought in World War II as an engineer as well. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know that at that age, but just always had a fascination with it. And as I got older and I studied history and I started learning about, you know, the grand things that militaries can do, mm-hmm. uh, the development of drill and how that affected um, military combat, the technology differences as it changes changes warfare and then that changes defensive techniques tactics and then it changes offensive tactics and then weapons get changed and then it just constantly builds the societies that we're in right and as i got older and got more fascinated by it and i was like man that sounds like a really good place to be and yeah i spent some time not in the army after school Mm -hmm. and then realized that no this is not not me and Got so, back, got it as fast as I could. So it was, it, you kind of lived a life in which it was a dream you always had, but you weren't structuring your life to get there until a certain point, and then you, yeah. you went full in. Pretty much, yeah. I was, I think I was 20, 21 or 22, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm going in the army. I'm done with mm-hmm. finding jobs and trying to pay rent and all this crap, and 
I'm going for it. And for context, you're 35? 30, yeah, 35 now. 35? Oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was <clears throat> 21, and I that day I started running every day, and I started uh, loading my backpack up, and I started doing marches and started going for distances and uh, just building myself up, prepping to get in. How did you know that's what you were supposed to do? Oh, well, when you look online at the recruiting pages, it has... Uh, what your the minimum standard that you should be able to attain, and so I was like, okay, well, if I that's the minimum, yeah, let's go all in. See how see how far I can get. What was what was basic training like? Did it, was it what you expected? Was it worse? Was it better? It's not what everyone thinks it is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's hard, but it's mostly psychologically taxing. The I was a recruit instructor too, but by the time I retired, so I got both sides of it, which was really neat. But right. um, basic was physically challenging, but it's it's psychologically taxing. You're being given timings that there's no way you can meet. You're being given, you know, I want we're gonna go for a run and we're gonna do, you know, six k, and you're gonna be sweaty and tired. And he's like, okay, now you have to run up nine flights of stairs, shower change get ready for inspection downstairs ready for meals you have five minutes and you're like that that's a, that's literally physically impossible to make that timing well but, you just wasted four seconds arguing yeah well you don't actually say that even though you're going to be doing push-ups at that point um but you just you go and you run and you do as fast as you can and that's what they're trying to get into is that right regardless of the timing follow your orders go Right. So what would happen when you ultimately didn't meet that time frame? Well, that's where um, discipline and uh, I'm trying to think of the word they used to use for us. It was um, administrative PT. Oh, okay. <laughs> administrative physical uh, training. Yeah. So you do push-ups. You do, uh, they'd make you do squats. One of my favorites was weapons appreciation when you actually were, when you were given your rifle. And that's where you'd take your rifle and you'd hold it at arm's length. And they just sit there and stare at you. Mm -hmm. And it's not a heavy rifle. It's, you know, seven and a half pounds. But seven and a half pounds gets real heavy real fast when you're standing there outstretched in front of you. Uh, and again, it's a psychological game. They just want to see how far you're willing to push your body and how will, how far your will will take you. Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept, like, psychologically speaking, because pain in and of itself is not a... A like a bad thing it is but it's not the worst part of the pain no. the worst part of the pain is not knowing if it's going to end anytime soon if I told you you had a 10 out of 10 pain but you're only going to experience it for a second it wouldn't be so bad no. but if it was a 10 out of 10 pain I said but I don't, I'm not going to tell you when it's going to stop that would, that would be, yeah. be psychologically the most torturous part even of it even if it was like a 3 out of 10 pain and yeah. you don't know when it's going to end that's mm -hmm. still the whole like I deal with pain every day and just from the injuries I have and it sucks like you, I know it's not going to end. Mm -hmm. There's no, I can get some relief with pain meds and stuff, but it never stops. And that's the psychological portion of it. You have to just keep, keep going, keep going. Don't quit. Keep going. Yeah. So what were your injuries over there? Uh, well, I have uh, torn ACL, MCL, LCL, both knees, uh, as well as osteoarthritis in both knees. So uh, is that from g just general like wear and tear? Yeah, general wear and tear. I I got into a I was in a car accident when I was younger, so I had. A, minor tears from there and then they just like exacerbated right. all the rest of the stuff right and you can't exactly say oh I got bad knees I can't I can't <laughs> keep going and keep exactly. running you just gotta keep running um, so the knees I got a herniated disc in my back from uh, getting blown up overseas I got uh, bilateral torn ligaments in my shoulders 
as well as osteoarthritis in my shoulders. I got inner ear nerve damage, sorry, degenerative inner ear nerve damage. <laughs> Uh, again, from just years of explosions and uh, shooting and all that stuff. Uh, post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, all that right. stuff. Right. So. so I want to ask you about all of that, yeah. but I want to start with what a, uh, a field and en- combat engineer, what that is exactly and why you went into that. Uh, combat engineers are the guys that make, in in our creed, it says that we're, we enable the friendly forces to live, move, and fight on the battlefield. So that means that we need to be able to construct um, construct defenses, construct buildings, construct um, housing, water storage, food setups, you name it, we gotta be able to build everything that we need to live there. Uh, we also need to be able to, uh, we have a ROPU section which does uh, water purification, we have heavy lifts so all the big trucks we can bridge, uh, which is a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a lot of fun and then on top of that we also need to be able to move so we got to be able to build roads and tear down trees and take out forests and blow down buildings and all that good stuff so you're really responsible for everything to move the group forward yeah so you've got your infantrymen or whoever else that are involved in the actual combat part of it and you enable them in every single way shape or form pretty much yeah to move forward yeah that's incredible that's an important job yeah and in Afghanistan, no one moves without engineers, mm-hmm. period. Um, What's the ratio of like a platoon number? Of- uh, well, you have a section of engineers, so it's eight guys with a platoon of infantry with a uh, with a tank troop. Mm-hmm. So you have four tanks uh, of armored, which is about 16 guys. You have a platoon of infantry, which is, uh, I can do my math here. Uh, probably about 50 guys. Okay. So it's three lab, four labs, and then uh, light armored vehicles. And then you have an engineer section, which is eight guys okay. to make everything work together. Okay. So if my quick math is right, that's about 75 in the unit altogether. Yeah. So you call that a unit? Well, no, those are, that would be just like if we were going somewhere, mm-hmm. that would be the minimum amount of people we would take. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you're always <laughs> moving with some backup. You've got your entourage yeah. with you. <laughs> we had, uh, there was actually one time we got called out to, uh, a particular outpost had been getting shot at every day for like three weeks. They were just getting harassed all the time. And they, they were like, we need help. We're getting we're at almost at ammo. We're low on water. We need food. Please come, just come and get us. Mm-hmm. And we showed up and it was the quietest three days they'd ever had. <laughs> because it was four labs plus tanks plus all of our troops. And now we were just standing up on the walls with all our guns. Just like, mm-hmm. bring it. Somebody just bring it. Right. See what happens. And it was just quiet, nothing. So um, threat of threat of action is a real deterrent over there. Like they they will not, they do their calculations if they're gonna attack and they go, do we stand a chance here? Do we, we wanna risk it, you know? Yeah, it's one of those, normally if they come at us, they won't engage us in a, in a straight fight because mm-hmm. they lose mm-hmm. every time. Right. And so what they try to do is hit and run tactics where they'll set off an ID and they'll shoot us for a bit and they'll run away, hopefully. Uh, sometimes they'll just hit us with a bunch of IEDs. Sometimes they'll shoot at us first to draw us into another IED or a mm-hmm. bomb or something like that. Um, so there's they use their, the tactics of asymmetrical warfare, which mm-hmm. is just hiding within the public. Right. Um, but you know we we the Canadians especially we learn fast, and we we got housed in 06 when we moved down to Kandahar. Uh, I think it was a battle group, which is about. 5,000 people total 
and you're looking at maybe 600 troops outside the wire of actually fighting to control a size, uh, a province the size of uh, maybe half the size of Alberta. So you have 600 dudes that are patrolling this entire province. Right. And we're, we went in there and we held ground and we took them on face to face and did a lot of really hard work. Uh, and then we held it and we sat there until the Americans took over and we stepped over. Jeez. So you guys, um, would engineers deal with bombs as well? IEDs? <laughs> Mines, bombs, explosives, rockets, yeah. missiles, you name it. So is that a specific subset of combat engineer or is every engineer trained yeah, for that? Every combat engineer is trained for that. That's our primary job is mines and explosives. Yeah. And then <clears throat> you'd have varying things from there. So you have EOD, like explosive ordnance disposal, which is a specialty within the engineers mm -hmm. and they deal with the really crazy improvised explosive stuff. So would that have been like Jeremy Renner in that, the Hurt Locker? Yeah, that's such a horrible movie. <laughs> okay, good. And this is this is something I want to ask you about too, yeah. because I'm really interested in the disconnect between like the civilians' um, mindset about war versus the realities of it. So that movie was a exact example of what not to do <laughs> across the board. Okay, good. everything that they did in that movie was just wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you never handle explosives ever. Like if you find a piece of ordnance on the ground. You never touch it. Okay. If you need to get rid of it, you walk up, you put a charge beside it, you blow it up, blow it. move it away. Right. So you're um, not cutting the blue wire? No, there's yeah. none of that. That's EOD's job, and even then, they do that remotely. Mm -hmm. They have robots, they have shotguns, they have water impulse cannons, you name it. they got all kinds of toys to deal with it. Yeah. If, as an engineer, as just a regular on-the-ground dude, if I see a charge, put, a, put another charge beside it, make it go away. <laughs> and that's it. Is that... Um, is that work in your favor in terms of the the enemy thinking that you've triggered the charge? Are they watching and they know that you? Oh, they're watching. Oh, they're so, watching all the time. So yeah. they realize that you've gotten rid of. What do they do in that sense? Is it a retreat or is it uh, attack while you're trying to disarm or explode this? It's kind of both. They have they if they can see us as the thing is like engineers are different right than infantry, and we try to blend in so that we're not like standing out like oh these guys are specialists yeah but every once in a while you have to get specialized gear or equipment you got to pull charges you got to do something else and then you're immediately you're a target yeah so they uh, would want to target the more specialized guys right? absolutely because if you remove the engineers the infantry can't move <laughs> that's got to be a little frightening having the, the target constantly on your head yeah pretty much yeah. but it's but you trust your guys to have your back right yeah, that's the, the infantry got my back when i'm lots of times where i would be leading a patrol because I have the, the metal detector for mines and I'd be sweeping the road, my weapon's on my back. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally exposed. Right. But I had an infantier three feet behind me with his rifle out watching my ass. Mm -hmm. So, and I trust him. He trusts me with the road. I trust him with my back. That's and it system. works down the line. Yeah. So, so how'd you find yourself getting blown up? Bad luck. Bad luck. <laughs> we were in the vehicle. Um, two lead vehicles were tanks. And they were, they actually had big dozer blades and they were scraping the ground. Four explosives? Four explosives. And they hit, uh, it was, the road was on the side of a mountain, so their blades was kind of skipping off the rock. Oh, yeah. So they didn't actually, weren't digging as far as they were able, normally able to. And their bridge, tra the tracks actually were wider than the wheeled vehicles, so they bridge a lot of stuff. And the two vehicles went. We were like, okay, sounds good. Boom. 
Yeah. Luckily, it wasn't that big. Uh, no major injuries, some minor right. bumps and bruises and stuff at the time. So you were in a you were in a vehicle behind those dozers. Yeah. Yeah. What and, kind of vehicle? Uh, just an engineer lab, the light armor vehicles. Mm-hmm. The, uh, they're basically the same as the infantry ones. We just don't have the big twenty five millimeter cannon on top. Okay. So is that kind of like a like a Humvee? No. No. Okay. No, it's more. Well, I guess the Americans called them strikers. Okay. Um, I could show you a picture of them as well, but they're standard Canadian six-wheeled, seventeen-ton. Or I think if I look it up, what would it be called? An LAV. LAV. Three. LAV three. Oh, there it is. Oh. And there's an engineer lav, which is a variant of it. They just don't have the turret on top. Gotcha. So we have a little machine okay. gun on top and a big dozer blade of our own. Okay. So it's like looks like a mini half tank kind yeah, of thing. Kind of. Gotcha. Um, so what happened? The whole thing flip and uh, no, it just blew off a couple of the tire, uh, blew off a couple of wheels. Um, the driver's hatch popped open. Um, I took which this is where the damage from the ears came in is that there's a hatch on the back which was open at the time mm-hmm. for air sentry, so you have a dude out looking. And because the the driver's hatch popped open, I got overpressure from both sides and it just like popped my ears. Oh. Uh, Both popped, eh? And it wasn't that bad. It just kind of like ringing from loud noise, right? And then the ringing never went away. <laughs> Jeez. And it's still, it still affects you now? Yeah. I got uh, two hearing aids. Holy smokes. And tinnitus at all times. Jesus. So I have the ringing in my ears 24-7. Never goes away. Wow. That's unbelievable. You seem like you can hear. Okay. The hearing aids are great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was going through your mind when that happened? Like, did uh, you think that like, can training adequately prepare you for that? Yeah, we did. We did our job. We had to clear ourselves out because <clears throat> we were the engineer group. Mm-hmm. So we all popped out of the hatch. Well, we all ever, like the entire convoy stopped. We popped out of our hatches. We started scanning the area, making sure there weren't any enemy going to come down on us. Mm-hmm. And then we got out. We started prodding to make sure there weren't any more explosives or mines around the area. And then we cleared our vehicle, our path up to the next vehicle. And then we brought a vehicle up, latched onto them so that they picked our lab up. Uh, they just like like a tow rope and hooked it on. Yeah. We cross-loaded into another vehicle across down the line and we drove off. How long was it until you were able to get medical attention? Well, there was, I was, uh, I was qualified tactical combat casualty care. So I was one of the medical guys in the vehicle and everyone was fine like no one was really hurt it was right. just like ringing ears and we were kind of like whoa what the hell mm-hmm. and then we cleared ourselves out so we just carried on right nothing then, to do at that point no. and we moving. checked in with the doctors when we got back to the fob later that night and they were like oh wow cool. mm-hmm. you guys are good <laughs> what was um what was was that the closest you would have been to like real danger in <laughs> afghanistan no, like no what were some of the what were some of the real dicey situations that you found yourself in uh I had one that was it was rather interesting. We we got into this major firefight early in the morning, and we just basically crushed what attacked us. And well, it was three guys decided to shoot at an entire platoon of of infantry that was in a defensive position already. <laughs> we were all in behind walls, and we had guns up, and they decided to Oops. shoot at us. <laughs> we just unha- uh, unleashed a hail of bullets at them. Right. And then we moved up to take their position to make sure that no one else was going to come with us, which is standard procedure. And we were sitting there, and I was on the far right flank, watching the right side. So everyone else is looking to my left, mm-hmm. watching the front, 
and I was looking right. Mm-hmm. I was a machine gunner as well, so <laughs> I had a lot of different stuff I was going on at the same time. <laughs> You're uh, well equipped. <laughs> yeah, so I had my light machine gun, and I was sitting there on the wall looking right, and I realized that I hadn't eaten lunch yet, and everybody else had eaten already, and I was like, oh, I should probably eat something. So I looked back, I'm like, hey, Rolly, can you take over the flank while I grab a quick bite? And he's like, yeah, sure. And as I stood up, a round went right over my head, and it cut a branch off of the tree <laughs> that I was Jesus. standing under. And I realized afterwards that he had to have been targeting me, and me standing up brought his right. He just reacted too fast. Wow. And I immediately got down. Everyone else started shooting. We were all just like, <laughs> became this whole But when it goes by your head, you're like not thinking shoot. It, it you're was thinking within, cover. Oh, no, I was engaging right away. I went down and I came up and I just started lighting that area up. Right. I realized that the frontage wasn't my responsibility after a couple of seconds and like shot a couple more rounds and then turned back to the right and just waited for that. So I imagine at a point like that, first of all, lunch saved your life, which is pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but I imagine when something like that happens, adrenaline kicks in. Yeah. And the training kicks in. Training and kicks just, in. Everything else shuts off and off you go. So what is, what is the come down like from that? Like when, when, <laughs> when it becomes a little safer um, and you, you start the body, well, maybe not relaxes, but the adrenaline starts to fade yeah, away. Yeah. I was shaking for a while and then you get real tired real fast and you're just, all you want to do is go to sleep. So your body's in overdrive oh, at that point, right? And, and then you're totally in withdrawal because it just drops out of your body and you're just, so at that point, again, training kind of starts to take over and you have to, like, okay, I need to get up. I need to do something. I think we were, we were walking back and I was just, I have a video of it somewhere on my computer and I was just so done. Like I had no drive whatsoever and I was in the middle of the line. So I wasn't actually really uh, worrying about mines or anything at that point in time. So I was just, oh, and I came back to the lab <laughs> and I just had this huge sigh and I sat down and I felt like, and it was, and I woke up back at the fob, and I was just like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, back, right. back to normal. Wow, that's such an interesting thing that probably nobody, hardly anyone, is ever going to experience in their life, at least not in this part of the world. Hopefully, yeah. The uh, the only thing I can think of is, you know, after skydiving or a major, you know, a close call after almost hitting a deer or something mm-hmm. like that, and your adrenaline peaks and then it drops, and then all of a sudden you just get really tired and drowsy, and that's right as close as you can come to it. Did you get the light flash before your eyes kind of thing? No. No. No, it was all just find the enemy, hit every, anything you can see, cover it in bullets. That was the only thing that was going through my head. So by the time it was, uh, it was your point to leave Afghanistan, sort of what, uh, what, what was going through your head at that point when you're getting <laughs> Well, I had, I had two instances of that actually, because there was a mistake which kept me in country for an extra three weeks. So you were there a total of what, eight months? Eight months. Yeah. yeah. Eight months and change, I think. Anyway, the uh, I did. I came in with my section as we we're supposed to leave together as a group, and this was in September. Um, yeah, early September, and my entire section. So we've been living together for these last six and ch- six months and change, and we're all really good friends, and we're all supposed to go and decompress together and be together as a unit. Mm-hmm. And I show up, and my major's like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> going home. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing here? Get the fuck out of here. And he's like, no, you're not. Aren't you in so-and-so section? And I'm like, no. He's like, oh, don't go anywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> oh shit. So I come back and, uh, or he came back with the Sergeant Major and they told me that uh, there was a bit of a papers, 
snafu and I was I couldn't get onto this chalk of guys so I had to watch my section leave <laughs> and uh, the next morning the major came down and he's like you know what while you're here it's going to be a while we'll just send you back out and I'm like I have nothing I've already sent off my gear I have my rifle and a magazine yeah that's it and he's like well we'll get you some new gear we'll send you back out tomorrow and We'll get you out with that section so that you can still work while you're here. Now. That's going like, to be mentally devastating. You're like totally psychologically prepared to leave. I was already done. Like I I was supposed to leave that morning. Yeah. I was in my head. I was already out. Of yeah. Country. You're checked out. You're yeah. And he's like, no, you got to go back out. And the uh, squadron two, I see the captain came down and he was just like, major. No, I don't care. You can demote me or charge me or whatever. This guy is not leaving the pub. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. And I credit him with saving my life, actually, because the the convoy I was supposed to be on got blown up on the way out there, too. Holy so it shit. Was, the one that they wanted you to go back out on. Yeah. And how many casualties were there in that? Uh, there was two wounded, but no dead. But I would have been on the, I would have been in the lead vehicle being the only engineer on it. And oh, my just God. A, anyway, it was, so I sat in uh, Kanahar Airfield for three weeks and. After a week, I was pretty done. I wanted to actually go to do Right, yeah. But You're like, okay, well, I'm here. So. Yeah, my mind was back into it, but he wouldn't let me leave. So thankfully, yeah, I didn't have to do that. But then yeah, actually leaving, just overall relief and being done and being so tired, mm-hmm. so tired. It is ridiculously hot over there, and you're carrying so much stuff all the time. All the time, yeah. The uh, general load was 80 pounds. Which is, that's like if you're in your vehicle mm-hmm. and you just get outside for five minutes, 80 pounds. If you're going on patrol where you're actually on foot, because I was a machine gunner and an engineer and a medic, well, not a medic, but a teachable C, uh, I was just over 200 pounds for the gear. Just con- like just walking. Yeah. You and need like a, a Sherpa with you just to <laughs> empower you to be able to do your job. I was, I was a 200 pound dude already, so. Yeah. <laughs> I was 220 when I was there, but <clears throat> you're, I'm carrying another of me every day wow jeez that's you you think at some point that that detracts from your ability Mm -hmm. that your your performance would suffer because of that well they have um, quick release tabs on all your gear so like when you're carrying your bag and you get into it you just drop your gear and you go fight right okay so you have and then you feel lighter yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) I can run like the wind yeah (laughs) I go from there but and then the heat is we had it averaged, I think, 58 degrees Celsius while I was there. So you must have had a hell of a farmer's hand. Oh, yeah. I, would, <laughs> I, I think I looked like an Afghan when I came back. <laughs> really, really dark. I actually got stopped at, uh, I went to Vegas after I got back as like a congrats yeah. job or home. And I got stopped by TSA and I had a beard and I was just like super dark brown. And I'm like, is this really a random thing? <laughs> Something else. I feel your pain, yeah. fellas. Yeah. But... Yeah, it was just uh, it was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty dark, and I was angry. It was when it was. I didn't realize what was happening, but it was the slow onset of post traumatic stress, just from the, the amount of stress mm-hmm. over tour, and then being home, and not really knowing anything anymore at that point. Because right, like I said earlier, is I trusted the dude behind me with everything, and he trusted me. Yet home, you don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. So now you're constantly on edge. You're constantly aware of there's people everywhere, and they could be bad guys, and they could be good guys, and I don't know, and I don't have a weapon anymore. I don't mm-hmm. know. Right. And 
your life before you went on tour um, that didn't kick back in you know, like you've kind of changed for good oh, after that yeah you don't go you don't go fight like that and it not change you there's no way unless you were crazy to begin with which mm-hmm. but it was yeah no would you what percentage of, of people returning from tour would you say are affected in these kind of ways it's everyone, everyone. I, don't, I don't know anybody that wasn't affected after tour it's how well you integrate back so a lot of guys, you know, you stay in the army, you stay in the routine, you stay in that mentality, and it you can slowly bring yourself back into the fold of things. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was still in the army, I could go out, I could go like to the mall, I could I could deal with larger crowds of people. Sometimes I, I would have to back off, but there was that routine of it of just okay, every day is kind of the same day. And, uh, it's fine once you're out of the army and you're no longer in the family in the fold. You don't have your uniform you don't have your um, you know there's no weapons locker there's no none of that then it becomes a bit more agitating and then you're like you start to realize that you don't have all those dudes behind you right to cover your back and then makes everything harder well yeah it's it's got to shift your your perspective completely like you go from so goal-oriented to when you have too many possibilities it, it can be overwhelming yeah. right like, and a lot of guys don't know what they want to do after they just they get out and they're like, okay, thank God I'm out. Now, oh shit, now what? <laughs> it's like the, gra- the grass is not always greener on the outside. Well, if you don't have a plan, yeah, you're kind of SOL. And a lot of guys will get out and then they'll get back in mm-hmm. and they'll get out again and they'll get back in. There's always that draw back to it of, you know, being a hard charger and being that guy mm-hmm. back in the army. You're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I wish I could, maybe I should go back in or I wish I could go and exercise and go shoot some stuff or go blow things up or, uh, Anytime I get a feeling like that, I call a friend of mine who's still in. Hopefully, there's there aren't exercises or something like that. And I'll be like, "What are you doing today?" And they're like, "Ah, I gotta build some stupid thing because the commander wants to drive a truck over and have a picture taken." And you're like, "Thanks, man. See you later." All right, <laughs> you did your job. <laughs> um, because after your first one, you were thinking of going back to do a second tour. Uh, I was actually already, I was on the list to go on a second tour, and then uh, we'd done all the workup training and. I think about three or four months before everyone left, there was there were some issues with be, between me and a sergeant major. And I have this bad habit of telling people what I think <laughs> immediately. Well, right it could away. be good and bad. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't get uh, intimidated by rank or size or people. I just mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I think when I when I, when I think it, and that it kind of derailed my career for a little while. And they went on tour without me, and that was. I think probably better for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got me into a command position, so I was actually doing leadership stuff. Right. I was Training, running, right? Yeah, and I was running a section of 14 guys at that point, so uh, could just working with boats and um, <clears throat> doing all the training at home for everybody else, which was much better. And then I was able to take my leadership course, and then I was able to get uh, posted as an instructor out mm-hmm. in Ontario. and. Mm-hmm. I had much much better time about that. Did you? Um, what was the experience being an instructor like? I mean, like you you experienced so many things while you were over there in, in a short eight months, right? It's really yeah. condensed. And did you feel like an obligation to want to pass on absolutely as powerful yeah. information as possible? Hundred percent. There was. I've always enjoyed teaching anyway, but uh, passing on that the nature of what I was teaching which was, you know, combat tactics and uh, theory of explosives and mine awareness and things like that. It's 
so important in that particular style of combat that it was I saw it again another added duty to everything else that to pass on the the skills that I have on somebody else mm-hmm. and I was a I was a hard instructor I, there's no doubt about it <laughs> I had uh, a lot of my recruits who <clears throat> they were not happy with me at the time but I met afterwards many uh, a couple years after and they all you know three or four of them now have thanked me and they're like man thank you for you set us up for that next course and right. the next course after and the course after because right. I was I was mean <laughs> well it's not your job to make friends right it's no. your job to prepare them and if if the best way to do that is to be hard on them and to be yeah. mean then well, it wasn't unfair I was just I didn't let anything go yeah there was no slack no lax it was 100% all the time I feel like that should should be how all trainer uh, recruiters and, and instructors most are. are most are it there's sometimes where you're just you know sometimes you're tired sometimes the guys are tired you can see that they're not really there mm-hmm. but I'm I don't I don't give breaks for nothing I, have, uh, <laughs> I had my first course we were in the field and I found some a piece of kit like a glove or something like that and I was like oh so I picked it up and I was walking around with it, asking her, who lost a glove, who lost a glove. And everyone knows that if you lose something, you're going to be doing push-ups. Right. Yeah. yeah. So no one wants to admit it. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I have this glove. And the terrain we were on, it was really snowy, but it had just frozen. So you had that like crust of snow and a crust of ice and then snow. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly like step, drop, step, <laughs> drop, step. And it's, it was hard on my knees, hard on my back. So I had this big walking stick to kind of help me get around. And, uh, as I went along and I was finding stuff, I was I found a bungee cord. So I took that glove and I bungee corded it to my stick. Mm-hmm. And then I found something else. I put that on the stick. And then I found something else. And I put that on the stick. And then we were there out in the field for a week. So, I mean, like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff people are losing. And yeah. no one's coming to get it from me. Right. Uh, eventually, somebody would remember that they needed something. And they would pay to get it back. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Pay sort of, money. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> some sort of PT or something to get... Uh, and sometimes it was morale building too. Like I would make them sing a song yeah. or dance a jig or something just to get people laughing again and getting them, you know, mm-hmm. in, enjoying themselves a little bit. And at the end of this exercise, everyone has to give a declaration. Mm-hmm. They have to, uh, each individual person has to talk to the sergeant and they have to say, I have no live rounds. I have uh, no blanks or explosives or parts thereof. And I have all my kit, sir. Mm-hmm. And then the sergeant goes down the line and then he goes to the captain of the lieutenant and says, one section's good. I have no live rounds, blah, blah, blah. I have all my kit. Now, at the beginning of this, as everybody was getting formed up, I took this stick and I put it right in front of everybody. And I just stood there. And I waited for everybody to give that declaration. I waited for the sergeants to then go up to the captain. And the captain sat there and he was just about to let them go. And I was like, sir, can I have a second? And he looked to it back at me and he saw the stick and he just... Yeah. <laughs> he put his head down and he walked away and I'm like okay so everybody here just so you know you just now lied yeah. to your sergeant and you lied to and they all just lied to the captain mm-hmm. for you right this is a chargeable offense mm-hmm. if you get caught lying you can actually be charged in the military for it mm-hmm. very serious we're not going to charge the entire platoon but <laughs> we just need to I wanted them to make sure that everyone knew what just happened yeah but that was supposed to be like, if I had waited an extra three seconds, they would have gotten on the truck and gone back into the camp. Right. So they would have been done. Right. And I wanted to make sure that everyone knew. You don't stop until you're back there. If not, 
oh, 10 minutes, okay, I can just relax now. No. And well, every single person had to come back and get their glove or get their piece of kit or something and right. in front of everybody else. But not only is it a chargeable offense, but I mean, if, if you get inaccurate information in the field, that can kill people. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, that's probably the more important lesson to be taught, right? Well, that's the extension of the smaller lesson, right? And that's where you build on it from there. How do you how do you convey that to them in a, in a scenario in which there is not really a life and death situation in training? How do you how do you really hammer home that point of like this could result in you or someone you know dying? You build on it. It's it starts off with, you know, this is unethical and how could why would you do this because you're screwing over everybody else. Now everybody else is standing there waiting to go back into camp hoping to get into bed while you're sitting there doing push-ups in front of them because you just lied to everybody else. Mm-hmm. A little social obligation. So there's yeah. that. And then later on, you start to build on it and you start talking about, okay, we're in the field, we're doing some tactical things, and you come up and say, okay, say you breach a door, boom, kick in the door, and you say, open door right, but it's a closed door, and people start filtering past you and pushes you into the door, now you're dead. Yeah. And that that different... Or if you say, even if you say it's closed and it's and it's open, or it's you say it's closed but it's actually cracked open a little bit, that somebody might sneak past on that left side and then they're mm-hmm. going to get shot this way, and then you slowly build as they're training. Oh, that's why in, you know information is so important. Right. Oh, that's why lying is really bad. Oh, that's right. why you know being ethical is so important and so on. And it just every lesson builds on it each yeah. other. And so recruits should be encouraged to say I don't know versus making up an answer. Side. No, no. you never say I don't know. Okay. You, you know, I don't have the information, but I can get it for you. Okay. And then you'll go find it out. Or if, you know, if you just fucked up, own it. Yeah. And I, I screwed up. Mm-hmm. Won't happen again, sir. And off they go. And I would rather somebody say, I had, a, I had one young recruit fall asleep and I woke him up in the field by taking his machine gun away from him. <laughs> and he looked up at me and... He you just like won't happen again, man. <laughs> okay, damn right it won't. Yeah, and that is acceptable to me. He immediately knew he was wrong. Yeah, didn't come up with excuses. No, he owned it and just said, "Yeah, my bad." Yeah, I had another recruit, same thing. I pulled the machine gun out from under him. First thing he said to me, "I wasn't sleeping, Master Corporal," and I was like, "Really?" <laughs> so forty-five seconds it took me to get to you. Yeah, your eyes were closed. I was watching, and he's like. I have psoriasis on my Jesus. eyelids. All right, kid, which get out. Causes me to blink long. He actually <laughs> said that to you. That's that's the exact quote. And I'm just like, what an asshole. <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't even know what to, at that point. That excuse blew my mind. I was mm-hmm. just like, I don't even know where you think that would work, ever. Mm-hmm. But she said, "Well, this is even worse. You allowed me to take your gun, and you weren't sleeping. Yeah. That would have been better than being awake." Luckily, I had. Uh, Every section is run by a sergeant, a mass corporal. So the sergeant was right behind me as I pulled it away from him, and I was like, about to light him up. He gave me my excuse, and then the sergeant stepped out from behind me and just <laughs> lit him up. Yeah. Did you find um, training other people helped you mitigate some of, of the suffering you were going through? Mm, I think it helped me keep it aside. Okay. I don't know about mitigated it. it uh, keeping the mentality. This is where I actually started to notice where a lot of my issues were coming forward was I wasn't sleeping I was angry all the time um, there was times where I just wouldn't know what to do and I would just like blank out other times where I would 
literally black out and I would just be sitting in the office just kind of staring at the wall and guys would be like hello yeah um, but what it did was it kept me in the loop of I wake up every day you go train your dudes okay right. these are classes you need to teach bam 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 and you there's a focus so you can keep on going step by step it was the off time which changed everything because I was just I didn't realize what was happening right um and it's much more relaxed. As an instructor, you get treated like an adult. When you're in the regiment, you're not an adult. You're a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in a very, not a negative connotation, but you are told what to do every step of the way. You will be jacked up left, right, and center regardless of the time in. You have, um, you know, all your timings are very hard timing. There's no um, moving things around. When you're an instructor, time is a bit more fluid. <clears throat> when you give a timing, I say you need you have five minutes to get dressed, you have five minutes to get dressed. But if, you know, one of the kids or one of the recruits falls down the stairs and hurts himself, then I need to adjust my timing, right? Because he's hurt, I need to deal with him. Right. The platoon's got to be dealt with somebody else and now i got to deal with it and then you can kind of shuffle things. Mm-hmm. So, you're given leeway and when you're not training, you got really nothing. I, my first timing when I showed up there was 10-ish. And I'm used to like, you will show up at 10.05, period. And you're there at 10 to make sure that you're there on time just to be there. Right. And I got a 10-ish timing and I was like, I don't. What did you do with that? Did you show up at 10? I did, yeah. 9.59? <laughs> yeah, at 9.50, 9.50 even, yeah. I showed up and I just sat there in the office like. Hey, it's better to be early. Yeah, well at 10.30 he called and was like, are you actually in the office? I'm like, yeah, I'm here. And he's like, oh, I got nothing for you, go home. <laughs> like, well, this is a little different. Yeah. So, what, um, what if any, uh, sort of exit strategies or exit counseling does does the military give to people getting out? Not much. Um, you're supposed to have like a six month sequence as you're leaving of you know you got to go see Veterans Affairs and you got to go deal with your medical and your dental and make sure everything is in line for you to actually release and your pace covered and your uh, pension is dealt with and all that stuff. But it's usually very last minute. It's usually very, like I I had to call in to my um, my adjutant and be like, you know, I'm retiring in two months. Am I supposed to be doing anything right, right. now? And he's like, oh yeah, right, maybe, yeah, okay, you, got an, you need an appointment with this, 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 this. And then I had to drive an hour and a half to Borden because it was a major base there. So I was constantly back and forth trying to get stuff done for my last two months mm-hmm. and doing therapy and doing stuff because that was when I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. So do they do they give everyone therapy upon exit or is it just people who say like, hey, I think I might have an issue coming out? You have to actually request help. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one can send you to help, which is good and bad. Right. Um, but yeah, so I... I went in thinking that I needed to see somebody about my sleep. I was like, I don't, I sleep four hours a night, maybe. It's two hours here, two hours there kind of thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, that, that that's not good. Maybe you should <laughs> go see this guy. So I talked to the, the psych there. And he's like, oh, well, are you waking up angry? Are you waking up confused? Are you having bad dreams? I'm like, oh, yeah, pretty standard. Check, I'd, check, check. Yeah, i gotten used to all these things. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, okay, so we're going to start kind of diving into that and then that I started to realize all the other symptoms I was going through and all the other mm-hmm. uh, the expanded symptoms from there so you know the the blanking out and the the blackouts and the 
uh, anger just in general, stuff like that. And then it started to build on. I was like, oh, right. And I realized that I'd had this for years mm -hmm. and I just got so used to it that I didn't even think about it. Right. And you provided a structure in which it like didn't really have, there was no outlet for exactly. it. Right? And you got the physical stuff to it too. So like you wake up in the morning, you're not really there, but you still got to go run or you got to go to the gym or you got to mm -hmm. go do PT with the rest of the boys. So you go do that and then you're charged up again for the day. You've just had a good workout right? and you can work for the rest of the day. And then you're exhausted at the end of the day and you don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> and then you don't sleep and then you do it all over again. It just becomes this. Well, it sort of speaks to the importance of, of physical fitness when it comes to your mental health, right? Yeah. You know. And that's, that's a big part of uh, the walk for veterans that I'm doing is a big part of it is the, uh, the Edmonton one, at least here, uh, it's going to be about health and wellness. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so, uh, the people that I have out there and the vendors that are going to be talking all do health and wellness. Four Points Health um, is going to be there talking about, uh, what should we call it? Um, Alyssa, you just talked to last yeah. week. was um, So she's going to be doing fitness in general, nutrition, yoga, meditation, yeah. neural feedback, all the stuff they do that she's going to be, her team's going to be talking about that. I have Equinox Therapeutic. They're going to be talking about uh, equine assisted therapy. So working with horses and doing therapy. Um, and then I have another friend of mine, uh, Gary Miller. He's actually going to have a horse out there discussing why working with horses is so mm -hmm. good for trauma. Um, and a few others as well as I'm working on this as we speak so. right yeah well at the end of this we'll, we'll get into some more of the details that we can leave people with and tell them where to find more info yep. but um just getting back to your specific story so so what avenues did you pursue um for treatment that didn't work and then and then we'll talk about what ultimately did end up working well helping. the uh i went to just a regular therapist at the osi clinic here in town it's the occupational stress injury clinic so uh not just military but even uh, someone at like a police officer or firefighter or even you know construction worker if they see something traumatic and they're having psychological issues they would be referred to there because it's a provincial uh, healthcare facility mm -hmm. so I went there and I saw a doctor for about a year and I just it went everything went I actually got worse dealing with him really what kind of things was he doing with you I just I never really fully trusted him, but because that's where I was sent, right. I just did it. Um, it, I think I was, I realized that after six months of seeing him, he still couldn't remember what my son's name was. Oh, fuck. And I was like, are you really even listening? And then I started realizing as I was going over the sessions, I would start watching him. This is where it went bad because I was analyzing him <laughs> as he was supposed to be analyzing me. Right. And it seemed like he was much more concerned with you know, how this was going to turn into a book or how it's going to turn into publication or whatever, then actually helping me through any situation I was getting Serious out. ulterior motives. Yeah. So I was, I would show up, I would, well, I would drive going there. I would show up first and then spend an hour getting more agitated doing exposure therapy, which is talking about the specific events over and over and over and over and over again. Right. And I'd leave and I'd be more agitated than I would when I got there. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be pissed off for three days and I'd have to deal with my wife and my kid and they would have to try and work around me as I was just oh, man. out of it. So uh, it took me a while, like I said, a year, and I realized that that just wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. And I started looking for trauma specialists in town. And that's when I found Equinox Therapeutic, actually. And, and I was like, oh, wow, they do horse therapy? And I grew up in... 
you know, really end in the city and my family owns a ranch and we've been around horses and animals for my whole life. So you had lots of experience with horses before. I was just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't we be working with horses? So I started doing equine therapy and man, I just leaps and bounds. Amazing. First, yeah. My wife commented after three weeks, she's like, whatever it is that's going on, <laughs> keep doing that. Keep doing that. So walk us through what exactly are the steps of the process of equine therapy? Well, it's pretty much the same as regular therapy. You're still out there with the psychologist and you're still working with them. Mm -hmm. The thing with horses is that they, um, they're called divine mirrors in a few different circles. And it's because they will reflect any emotional uh, changes you have. They will reflect back to you. So if you are agitated and you walk out in the field of horses, they are not going to want to be near you they will normally just saunter off farther down the pasture, which is going to make you angrier. And then you're going to try and catch these things. And they're going to start running and you're going to start running. And then it's just right? But if you're speaking about a traumatic incident, you're trying to go over something that really bothered you. And as your, um, as your heart rate rises and as the, uh, the event starts to take over psychologically and you start falling into that, the horses will react to you. Right, they'll get agitated, and, and, and then you can see that. And it's immediate, like you'll have your hand on them and you can feel them start to flinch when you start to think it in your head. Those, you'll, um, this one big dude who I used to work with named Dante, uh, he would reach over and he'd like bite at my shirt whenever I started to kind of get out of it because he's starting to get agitated mm-hmm. because I'm so ramped up. Mm-hmm. And that's where it works is that you have the, yeah, the immediate reaction and then you can, oh shit, right? And then you can go through your, right. your patterns of breathing and whatever techniques you have to bring yourself back down and mm-hmm. carry on so that you're not, the event doesn't take over. So they can reflect back to you your sort of inner state, even if you're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're if you stressed out and you have no, like, because you know, we react poorly to people when we're stressed. Usually we don't realize we're stressed, right? Oh yeah. So that they're able to pick up on that. Instantaneously, yeah. And there's, n- this is why there's actually been a shift in horsemanship over the last 15, 20 years into a more natural horsemanship style of using less hands and more just in like the feeling of what you want to do. And it's more like, I need to turn left. So you sit up and you turn and you look and you don't even need to use your reins very much anymore and just the horse goes. And if you're calm, the horse is calm. You get into a you know a, um, threatening situation <clears throat> for a horse, which could be anything, you know, running water or a dog jumps out or anything. If you stay calm, mm-hmm. the horse stays calm. Wow. Now, how is that affected by multiple riders of one horse? Did they develop a bond with you specifically? Like were the horses that were able to be more tuned to you? Well, they're naturally gregarious animals. So they are used to being in large herds and groups of structures and things like that. So they will pick up on the most minor signals from each other horse and you and other riders and people on the ground. And they were constantly aware. This is what makes them so effective for military vets is because they live the same way. Mm-hmm. Horses will constantly be asking themselves, is this area safe? Is that the noise I just heard okay? Is this area okay to sit to, <clears throat> to eat from? Is that area okay to drink from? Is this, and it's, it's a constant awareness. That's how soldiers live overseas. That's exactly what we do. And can I sit down there? Is it going to be an IED? Mm-hmm. Is that dude who's looking at me, is he looking at me funny or is he just looking at me? Is that guy up on the roof just sitting on the roof or is he watching our patrol? Like, and it's that constant picking apart each little piece. Right. That's why we work together so well. So how long have you been working with horses now? Um, probably three years now where I do, I do equine therapy in the, in the summers and then I do 
regular therapy through the winters. Mm-hmm. And I just recently started, um, last couple of years, I went to Old College to get an equine science diploma there. Didn't quite turn out what I wanted it to be, so I moved on from there and I'm now at Nate, but uh, taking a business diploma. <clears throat> but I've also been working, trying to work horses for a while. I do training for a friend of mine where I work his young horses to get them, you know, manners and standard movement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also equine facilitated learning um, qualified, so that means that I can do like team building events and things like that where or communication workshops, stuff like that, and helping people learn how to use a skill with the horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, just recently got my riding instructor certification, which is all leading into my grand plan for what I'm going to be building in the next few years, uh, which is a, a therapy slash treatment center slash retreat for first responders and vets and people who are suffering from PTSD. So uh, I want to be able to have people come out, work with the horses, learn how to ride, still get therapy <clears throat> and then uh and then work for the day mm-hmm. so you know you got to clean stalls you got to do fences you got to you know build this you got to go run the well or now you can go fishing uh, and it just becomes this very relaxed atmosphere of work slash treatment All right my biggest issue even with the horses is that i can go out and i work with the horses for an hour and i feel calm and relaxed and i can be good to go and then i gotta drive back into the city mm-hmm. and I got to deal with traffic and I got to deal with people and I get ang- I get very agitated just getting home <laughs> so it, yeah. it negates some of the work that we just did to get right. back down whereas this is going to be more you know you show up for a long weekend three four days yeah and just disconnect from the world learn how to ride go up in the mountains go fishing work F- the physical nature for a lot of um, military and first responders that's something that we crave. We want to build something. We want to do something physical. That and purpose. Can, and yeah, exactly. And see something created out of it. Yeah. My wife came up with a great idea that we should have a garage with just an old vehicle in it so people can come and tinker. Because <laughs> if you got time and people are that acclimated, that's a very calming experience for a lot of people. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, for me, I like taking apart my guns. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I strip them apart, clean them, put them back together again. And I can do that um, mechanically without my brain being on it. So it allows me to just kind of mm-hmm. fade out and I, nah, 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 and then I'm much more relaxed after that. Right. Would you ever hope that it becomes a regular or at least a regular option for vets coming back? Absolutely. My plan is to actually farm this out to the VA so that uh, it would be like, you're having issues. Do you like horses? Yeah. <laughs> Go see this guy. Right. And then they'll basically just refer me to them or I can build directly to the VA mm-hmm. and be good with that. Well, the, the cool thing about it too is that you, you like this, the camaraderie, the sociable experience of being in the military yep. would, you get that at the retreat, but it's just dialed back, right? It's exactly, not yeah. like, you know, we're responsible for this, this, you're all taking, you're all doing your own thing, but you still got your guys there around yep. you. So you can kind of adjust that instead of just all of a sudden going back to your wife or your exactly. wife and a couple kids and there's nothing. Yeah. And that, that stress levels just jump right back up. And the other thing I want to do is take trail rides up in the mountains where, you know, we'll just ride, and you know, the therapist was going to be with us, so you, they would just ride off together to do some stuff. They'd come back an hour later, somebody else would go with them, and they'd just kind of phase through, and you'd just be up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. totally uh, well, exposed is actually a really good word for it, but right. you let yourself back to the world. Well, yeah, it, it opens you up, right? Because you don't have that top-down 
um, input of all the distractions of, of the real world or the real air quotes yeah. obviously the city life right like yeah. not the lights and the advertising yeah. and the and buzzing you earphone and don't all need that to worry shit. about rent you don't need to worry about phone bills mm. and family matters and drama and your neighbors and none of that it's just you and the horse and the mountains and there's that's it mm-hmm. and it's just so relieving to get all of that off your back and be able to just uh you know, release yourself to it. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's a beautiful feeling. <laughs> so what, what right now are the sort of the main issues with, with veterans and getting the care and support they need? Well, there's lots, <laughs> um, but the main ones right now are transition, which is coming out of the military. There's very little transition right now. It's here's your paperwork. Thanks. Have a good life. Yeah. And then you have guys who are just left. Um, one of my, uh, friends came up with the idea of having an out camp where you have a boot camp to get in, you should have an out camp to get out, which is, you know, these are the things you're going to be responsible for. You need to you need to remember to do your taxes. It's not going to be taken care of by the CISIP guys anymore. And you need to remember to do, you know, your electrical bill and your phone bill, and you're going to have to buy groceries, and this is how you eat nutritionally, and this is where you get a gym membership. And mm-hmm. the things of everyday life that you don't really think of when you're in the army. Right, because they want you focused on one thing and that's the mission. Exactly. And you don't need to worry about housing because a lot of guys live in the barracks. Okay. You know, all that stuff is taken off your paycheck before you even get it. You know, mm-hmm. the only thing you have to worry about really is making sure you have enough money to pay your cell phone bill. <laughs> At that point, you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a very troubling thing trying to get out of the army and, be, and do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... <laughs> an interesting outflux too because I was in Ontario and my wife flew out to uh, Montreal to visit some family I drove over to her picked her up and my new five month old baby and drove all the way back to Edmonton which was a long long seven uh, seven days no five days seven hours a day on the road right yeah. and it was challenging trying to figure out how to learn learn again to live with my wife because we'd been separated for a year and a half jeez <laughs> And with my new baby, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a challenge. But she was fantastic, and she did everything in her power to set me up for success. And I was able to stay home and just be with my boy. She went to work, and there were some rough days between <laughs> him and I, but it brought me back to the world because I was going to therapy, and I had mm-hmm. time. I was able to really build things and kind of go from there. So that helped me, but... A lot of guys don't get that. They mm-hmm. just see you later. They go back to their wife and their family and their home or not. And they're just like, okay, now what? Right. I got, I got no idea. Um, the other major issue that we're dealing with is obviously mental health issues um, and finding, you know, finding what to do. Fighting the government. That's another one. We like. There's no reason we should be fighting the government yet. Some are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have three tiers of veterans right now. We have the old veterans charter and the new veterans charter and we have this new pension for life that the liberals put out and it's it's just so confusing and so difficult to wrap your head around um, that a lot of guys are just saying screw it. Um, dealing with the veteran dealing with veterans affairs is it's a crapshoot. If you mm-hmm. get a good case manager who's really working for you, you can have an excellent transition. If you get somebody that's even mediocre, it can just destroy your transition completely. Mm-hmm. And a lot, I know a lot of guys, a good friend of mine I was overseas with, 
<clears throat> took him, he just recently got approved to get an MRI on his back for being flown up in Afghanistan and that vehicle actually rolled over. And he has he's had serious back issues since then. He's been fighting with the VA for 10 years to get an MRI on his back. Could be an MRI for 10 years. 10 years. And just recently it was approved. And he can't pay for it himself. Mm. Like, <laughs> And is that stuff covered, or is it it's supposed to be? Supposed to be. Yeah, and w- w- the thing you mentioned to me on the phone was that uh, you know you're in the in the army. You're trained to take the orders from yeah. from your authority or your superior, and, and that's just the way things are. Yeah. But in real life, you need to know when you're being taken advantage of, and you need to know when when you should push back. Yeah, and we we're so used to just accepting that, you know. If someone gives you orders, like you said, you're yes sir, no ma'am, whatever you need to do do it mm-hmm. but it's also information driven too if you need to know something someone will tell you if you don't need to know it you're not getting information so we're not used to pulling information from people right so when we want to apply for a benefit or something that we're supposed to be covered for we're not used to going out to getting the information we assume also, it'll be given to you yeah we're assuming that I'm qualified for it why am I not being given it right and then you're sitting there going well how does this guy have this but I don't because mm-hmm my issue is either worse or the same or whatever, I should be getting that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh yeah, you should be getting that. Why don't you apply for it? Here's some more paperwork for you to do. And you're like, but, but okay. Yeah. And then you put the paperwork in and they're gonna immediately deny you. And you're like, but that doesn't make any sense. You just said I could get it. And they're like, yeah, just apply again. So How you know, many hoops? How many hoops you want me to jump through? Yeah, so you apply again. You light the hoop on fire? <clears throat> yeah. And Jesus. there's, uh, there's all kinds of stories of that, of you know having to prove that you're injured constantly. Like These are I, the guys that are supposed to be working for you yeah. as the intermediary between you and the real world. Yeah, and they're just, some of them are just screwing people over. Others don't care. Others don't know. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the people in VAC don't know the programs that are available for the guys that they're serving. Mm-hmm. So you're left with people who are just going, they don't know as much as you do. And you're like, well, I, I can look into it and I'll get mm-hmm. back to you. And Sometimes you don't hear from them, sometimes you do, sometimes you're waiting weeks. Some, and it's a government facility, so if you send anything in, you're looking at, like, weeks to turn around. Right. And it's not something that, you know, uh, guys are getting out and they're like, well, I should be getting, I got a medical release. I should be getting paid while I'm still sorting my life out. Well, that takes about three weeks before that paperwork goes here, which gets sent to these guys, which then gets sent to these guys, which then gets down to you, and mm-hmm. then if that's correct... Great. If not, then you got to go back and right. do it all over again, and it just becomes this bureaucratic nightmare. Are veteran affairs officers um, are they former? Um, Some, not many. Really? Do you think that would be beneficial to put retired? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We get. Uh, it depends on the people, obviously. Uh, some military mm-hmm. trades are very paperwork driven, so okay. it would work for them. Right. You try and take an infantry officer or something like that and put him behind a desk and say, file paperwork for the next six years. <laughs> you be like, no, 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 not happening. So it, person to person, but veterans are really good at getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. If you need work done, we'll get Objective it done. Objective-based. Yeah, exactly. Mission-based. Yeah, so if you can get that and physical stuff for combat arms guys, mm-hmm. that's what we love. That's what we crave. That's why we did it. What do most guys, is there like a, a specific field or, or profession that most guys go into, or is it pretty pretty random? Uh, usually, a lot of guys go, if they're healthy, they'll go in first responders, police, mm-hmm. fire, EMS, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's still that mission-based, same drive, same mm-hmm. workload, same kind of effort, yeah. just at home. Yeah. Um, 
other guys really flourish in business because it becomes very it's that same mentality of lead the team yeah and you, you know lead your group you're going to charge forward and you're going to take over this sector of the business and then you can use a lot of military tactics right to kind of follow that on uh, other guys just kind of flounder because it's hard to find a job that's even similar right for me i did explosives a lot that was my forte i loved doing explosives <laughs> i got i got to do my largest charge was 1.2 tons overseas and that was wicked what were you blowing up uh just ordnance we found a whole bunch of old mines and um enemy stuff that we were able to move and <laughs> take it and then we just put it in a giant pile yeah it was awesome i'll show you the video after it's yeah, yeah so much fun um <laughs> But to get something like that in the real world, mm -hmm. few and far between, uh, I started looking into doing, you know, civilian demolitions where they blow building down and stuff like that. But you have to start as a general laborer for so so many years, and they don't take into account the fact that I'm more experienced than most of their guys there. Right. Uh, you can look at mining, but then you're gone for three weeks, and you come back for a week, and then you're gone for three weeks. Not the lifestyle you're interested and in. Exactly. Now, right? Yeah. For me, I was just wanted to be home with my family. Mm -hmm. So you start to, well, I don't don't know how to use my skills. What do I do? I'm right. a combat-oriented soldier. There's no combat in the real life, yeah. you know? And because of all my injuries, I had to, again, like, what can I do? I can't do the police. I can't be a firefighter. Mm -hmm. Physically, I'm just not capable of it anymore. And that's a huge psychological thing to get over as well. <laughs> yeah, I bet. You go from so enabled, so capable to what can I do now, right? Yeah. Like with my back, I can't run. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to be able to run 20 some odd K without much of an issue. I can't run at all now. I can make it, you know, a couple blocks and my back hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So, I mean, this, this retreat idea, um, sounds like the perfect gig for you. It, it, well, I was, it took me a little while, but I started to think of how do I want to spend the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. How do I make it enjoyable? And then how do I get paid for it? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you should be asking, right? <laughs> So I did some real soul searching and I uh, was down at my family's ranch at one point and I realized that I am so relaxed and so calm after being there for three or four days and just working. Mm -hmm. You know, you wake up in the morning, you feed the cattle, you roll through the hay field, you shoot a bunch of gophers, you feed the, feed the cattle again, you roll back through the hay field, shoot a bunch of gophers, yeah. and you just, you spend your day working and you're physically active and you're out in the, out in the world again. And there's no other thought. Every day is just today. And I was like, man, this is so therapeutic and I'm not even doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and physically it's not that strenuous. I'm not, you know, working my ass off trying to do stuff right now. I carrying 200 pounds of gear on you. That's exactly. Sure. 58 <laughs> degrees. Yeah. And the, uh, and then I was like, you know, I love horses and horse therapy has helped me so much. Why not just integrate those two and have people come out and relax and work with horses. Mm -hmm. And there are other places like that, like Sheepdog Lodge down in Calgary is just a retreat for vets and first responders. Great place, mm -hmm. beautiful location, but it's just a retreat. Right. So you come down for your for a weekend with your family and hang out and then you leave. Right, it doesn't incorporate the therapy the aspect. Therapy side. There's places that do equine therapy, like Camp Praxis in uh, Rocky Mountain House. They do great work there, but they just do horse therapy. Right, and off like, the retreat element. Exactly. You want to put those so together. I, I want to bring it all together and then work on purpose. Give mm -hmm. people that, 
you know, what do you want to do with life? Where do you want to go? How do you build that? Yeah. What are the steps you need to take from there? Well, I think of you as someone who's gone through all that process and, you know, with your afflictions, I think you're the perfect person to, to help walk those people through it as well, right? Like, yeah. look, I know it's overwhelming. Look, I know you don't know what you want to do. Look, I know you feel stressed and angry for no reason. Mm-hmm. I went through all that too. And like, I'm still working on it myself, but here's the things that, that have so far been successful at helping yeah. me. A lot of a lot of my myself included a lot of guys we have issues trusting someone who hasn't been there mm-hmm. and to have someone sitting there going you know I've been there and like you said I'm still working on it mm-hmm. we're in this together we're yeah. working on it together progress not perfection exactly right? and it's one step ahead same mentality as in the army when you're dead tired and you got nothing left the one thing you can concentrate on is right foot mm-hmm. left foot right foot <laughs> that's all you need to concentrate on that particular yeah. point in time just do it yeah. Um, and and then building a plan. Like if you didn't have leadership training, here's how to build a plan. Here's how to set this up. What's your ideal dream? Because this is going to be huge. But then you got to break down the steps. Okay, well, you need to do these six things in order to get this. So in order to do those six things, you need to be able to do these three things. And yeah. break it down to what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah. Okay, I need to make some phone calls. That's oh, easy. that's easy. Yeah. yeah. Bang. Start it up. That's a great way to look at it. So what are the, what's the main objective or main objectives of the, uh, the Veterans Walk? Uh, well, the walk is a fundraiser for the Equitas Society. And the Equitas Society is the six veterans who are in the lawsuit with the government right now. Okay. And that is over, um, it's, it's actually about quite a bit, but in 06, uh, the government changed the rules. Mm-hmm. So if I was injured prior to 06, I lost a leg, <clears throat> I would get a full pension as per the old charter, and you get this, it's actually quite robust uh, pension what they get. Pro, uh, post 06, I get a leg blown off, I get $300,000 and said, have fun. Yeah, do with it what you want. Yeah. So what you would have got previously would have totaled over a lifetime more than 300000 Way more. Oh, you're okay. talking a million plus, if you're like a general pension for if you were 100% disabled back then, I think it was something like seven grand a yeah. month Okay. Um, with a family. And then now you're being given $300,000 and there's still like, there's other things there that are beneficial. They're giving you retraining and they're paying you while you're in school. And there's some issue things there that are mm-hmm. good, but you take a 21 year old dude who just lost a leg, who now his career is over, mm-hmm. can't be in the army anymore, has no idea what the heck he's going to do. And you give him 300 grand and saying, have fun right. Life. Well, especially at that young of age, right? Like you're what probably depressed. Yeah. You, you know, you, you're not ready for the next stage of life. You're probably still immature because yeah. if you went into the army at 18, you haven't had real world experience yeah. outside of the army. What do you think is going to happen at $300,000? Gone. He's going to buy a really nice truck and maybe a house and if he's lucky, yeah. call it a day. Well, and that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Like I could see a situation where they drink it all or, oh, yeah. they, or you know, put it up their nose. Yeah, like yep. there's a yeah. lot of bad shit that can happen with that much money unmanaged. So that happened in 06. And since then, people have been fighting against this. Uh, one of the guys <coughs> here in Edmonton, Mark Campbell, he lost his legs on my tour. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a major. He His pension that he got out of it, uh, got out of the Army, is much higher than a private who lost both of his legs just because he's a major. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a major inequality there. There's also, um, also he got, you know, uh, he got a big lump sum. Here's a bunch of money. Mm-hmm enjoy but he still needs to buy a truck and he needs to have that retrofitted to 
uh, deal with his wheelchair and he mm-hmm. needs to do this. So the money just disappears very quickly and yeah. it starts to fade away. Um, so <clears throat> the Equitas Society is uh, that he's a part of is what's uh, fighting the government right now to basically remove the new veterans charter, this new pension for life, and try to create a system that is one whole system that's bringing everything together. Fair and equitable to everyone. And that's no it. One situation. soldier, one standard. Yeah. That's it. And give us a pension because a lot of these guys, like, I'm worried now with all my injuries because they're mostly degenerative. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a point in time where I can't walk. Yeah. There's going to be a point in time where I can't hear. I'm learning sign language with my son because I'm not going to be able to hear eventually. Um, and it's, I was given, a, I was listed 72% disabled, I think, 70% disabled, something like that. Is that 72% disabled or 72% capable? So being like no, 30% disabled? Thirty or 28% capable, basically. Wow. Um, just with all the injuries. Holy shit. As for what VAC puts, rates me as. Right. Um, and I was given $240,000 and that was it. And I mean, I'm getting trained, like I'm in school. Mm-hmm. They're paying for my school and they're paying for my supplies. And mm-hmm. again, great program to be under. But once school's up and I'm done. You're on your I'm own. I'm on my own. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, okay, there's two, you know, two things you can do. You can accept it and do the best with what you've got or mm-hmm. you can fight it. And like, who's to say which is right or wrong? But it's good to know that you can try and move on given that circumstance. Yet there's still these six guys in the Equitas, Equitas Society yeah. um, fighting for the rights of a whole bunch of other ones. And that's it's a pretty standard military thing is that you're going to have people fighting. There's going to be the front troops that are fighting. And there's going to be the support guys behind them, and then there's going to be the supply guys behind them, and then there's going to be the people at home which give you all this stuff. And like, there's there's always the guys in the front, mm-hmm. and as long as everybody supports them from the back, mm-hmm. then you can get you can move mountains if you need to. Yeah. Um, right now, unfortunately, there's such a divisiveness between veterans because we're all very alpha. This is what is wrong with the army, and I can fix it. Yeah. Yeah. No one's listening to each other. No one's you know, it's slowly the culture is changing over the last five, six years. It's kind of changing now, but um, there's still people getting arguments over, you know, what's the most important thing for us to fix right now? Right. Here's 17 different things, 23 different. Here's a mm. bunch of issues that are all wrong, but we can't work on them all right now. Right. Um, you have to pick the lead domino. Exactly. And yeah. then go from there. So we're, uh, I think the Equitas Society is doing some really good work and they're uh, constantly lobbying for us and trying to get this whole issue sorted out so that we have something that we can live off of. But, uh, I mean, the new pension for life that the Liberals just came out with, that they're touting is the new end-all, be-all, the be-great thing, it's nothing. It, for a 100% disabled person, yeah. the max they can come out with was $4,500 tax-free a month. And it's, yeah, it, sa- it sounds so great, right? Yeah. The pension for life. Yeah. It's designed that way to sound like, hey, that sounds like a great yeah. program. And they, they'll put out a bunch of pro, they're like, there's uh, a caregiver's benefit that your spouse can get for up to $1,000 a month where they can, if they're caring for you, mm-hmm. then they can get that. And you're like, that's great. But the criteria is impossible. Right. You have to be, a, you know, completely um, bedridden. And that person needs to be, they need to have so many qualifications in order to do it and then possibly get it. But you're so far past 
what a thousand dollars will do to help mm-hmm. that you're not you're not getting anything um, like my wife would be my caretaker but she wouldn't qualify anywhere near in order to get that right so they constantly put out all these programs like yeah here's this and here's that and this sounds great and it's beautiful and look how much money you can get now mm-hmm. but it make it impossible to get so mm-hmm. now no one can actually receive it and then the majority of people who aren't veterans just they see the headlines and they go hey that's great we're taking care of them yeah exactly but they don't realize the real issue well that's that's awesome so not only are you trying to raise funds but also the big thing is the awareness factor yeah. right so with that i mean where can people go to find out more information on this uh well you got the equitas society so it's www.equitassociety.ca mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> The Walk for Veterans is actually in a drop-down menu from there. Mm-hmm. They can get all kinds of information from that. Also on Facebook, the Canadian Walk for Veterans has its own page. It's got all eight cities that are listed on it. It's actually a national thing. So we have Vancouver and Victoria, Edmonton, uh, Kingston, Ottawa, St. John's, um, Halifax, and Fredericton. Mm-hmm. Right and it's on June 3rd. June 3rd. Yeah. Registration's at 11. Mm-hmm. And then we start the walk at noon. And there's going to be, like I said, all the vendors there talking about stuff. And uh, a couple, I actually just confirmed with Black Rifle Coffee Company right now. And I got a bunch of coffee from them. Nice. That we're going to have as a door prize for the people that register. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be getting other door prizes and more people that could, uh, to help out. And it's going to be a really great event. That's awesome. And where can people go to find out more about you specifically and follow your progress and your, uh, and your, and I mean, I know it's not there yet. Yeah, but. I, I don't really have anything. I mean, you can, uh, I've been recently, just as I've been getting more into advocacy, thinking about creating a public figure page on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can always link me on Facebook uh, under my name mm-hmm. and um, look me up on YouTube. I'm on a few different videos of <laughs> different things that I've oh, done cool. so far. Um, and yeah, eventually I'll get an actual program going. <laughs> I'm not 100% social media literate right and now. Sorry, one one step at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Uh, Chance, thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate your time, and of course, thank you so much for your service to to Canada. And um, you know, I hope uh, this inspires people to get involved, and you know, maybe to get out there and, and serve as well. And uh, yeah, just be a, <laughs> just be careful on the other end of it, right? Yeah, no, I appreciate appreciate you having me here. It was a really good chat. I really enjoyed it. Cool. All right, have a good one. You too. Truly honored, guys, to get to sit down and chat with a man who's put his life on the line for the country, um, and hear some of those incredible stories. So, thank you to Chance. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed the episode, and look forward to seeing you next week. Take care.